So, this morning, I'm going to be talking about the Beatitudes, all of them. I'll say right now, I might have gotten a little ambitious about how much I could cram into one Sunday morning, because you could easily spend an entire message on one of these, um, not even trying. But I, uh, I have the, one of the perks of my day job is I spend a lot of time in a work van, driving from job to job, looking at things, and so I get a lot of time to listen to... Uh, well, whatever I want to, but I can only take so much news, and so I always have to switch back over to a, a good study, because it's just, yeah, you can only take so much news these days before you're just like, I, I can't. Yes, things are awful, I'm aware. Let's, uh, let's get back to the fact the end of the story is written, and uh, not that we should ever bury our heads in the sand and ignore current events, but at the same time, if you let yourself get so caught up in them, where I, you can get your, just get dragged down, or angry, or... Um, uh, depressed even. I mean, and some of those emotions can be beneficial to motivate you, but at the same time, they can take you into places that aren't helpful and not Christ-like. So I started going through a series on the Beatitudes about two weeks ago. It was a 10-part series, and it just, it hit me continually so hard. When John, he asked me to, to speak, I was just like, is it like bad just to talk about what I've been listening to? <laughs> like, no. So that's what we're doing. Um, introduction out of the way there. I'm 90% sure that everybody in this room has read these multiple times, could probably recite them, um, has probably heard them studied. So it's, it, this is one of those, like, one of the most well-known parts of the Bible. It's the, the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the, the prelude to Jesus' entire public ministry um, right in Matthew 5. And it is a... It's so easy to look at these, I think, and just kind of like, here, here's a list of things. They're all good things and, you know, good attributes and, you know, positive. Here's a checklist for a good Christian, right? And, yeah, that's true, but that is, I mean, so just barely scratching what Jesus is laying out here. And uh, before I actually get into this, I wanted to talk about an old job I had really fast because it just kept kept coming to my mind tonight, tonight, this morning, I worked for 10 years in foster group homes, uh, in drug and alcohol rehab uh, group homes for foster kids down in California. It was uh, my swing shift while I worked days. Um, it was back in my 20s, and mom was home with a bunch of kids, and I was having to work two jobs. But it was an amazing job because I got this window into a world that I didn't... I mean, I was blessed to not have to grow up in. I was I had two amazing parents, super rural kind of American idealistic upbringing, you know, homeschooled and running around in the uh, woods whenever I wasn't in school. Um, and so getting exposed to all these young people who had a very different upbringing, um, a lot of inner city kids in the Bay Area, some of the rougher parts of the urban areas of California, which is is no joke. Um, these kids have had every uh, negative start handed to them and then been asked by society to be like, and now behave perfectly and uh not to take away individual responsibility, but at the same time to dismiss that is is something that um, unfortunately happens a lot and uh, is honestly out of ignorance in my opinion. But through that program, I got very acquainted with AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, which despite what it is now, was founded in incredibly grounded Christian principles. That was the foundation of the whole program. And there's probably most of you have heard of the 12 steps. I'm not going to go through them all. But the 12 steps are a super important part of recovery because they help you identify what's broken inside of you. And they also help you identify the order in which you need to identify and go through these things. You can't skip the beginning. You can't go right to the, I'm going to be better, I'm going to make amends, and I'm going to just, no, you have, you have to go through the beginning part, which is the hardest part. And then once you've got that, you can't then leave it behind as you move towards what comes later. Um, the first two steps essentially say, I realize, I admit, I am powerless. I have no ability on my own to fix this problem. And then the second one is, I need, no, it's called the higher power now in AA, but it was God. It was absolutely always supposed to be God. God is the only solution. And without those two things, without that foundation, everything afterwards would mean nothing, would not be able to happen. Um, the attitudes of a very similar order, they start with an emptying, with a, we're going to, de- you know, Jesus is, like this is a deconstruction, this is a, you are 
going to first have to recognize how utterly and completely lost and helpless you are before anything else happens. And if you miss that, I think you're going to spend your entire lives and your entire walks wondering why you keep falling down as often as you do and why despite doing all the things you're supposed to do, your heart never gets settled. So I'm just going to read through all of them, and then I'm going to start just so buckle in because I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to try to get through all of these. And uh, I have pages of notes here. I'm going to excuse me ahead of time if I am down and up a lot, but I don't want to miss some just some amazing things that I've uh, discovered the last two weeks. So Matthew five one through twelve, and I'm reading out of the ESV. I'm sorry, I know most of you guys have uh, New King James. We can we can have that conversation later. <laughs> Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is quite a list. And I was really blessed. Um, earlier in my life, uh, right, at, right at when I graduated high school, my parents uh, gifted me a trip to Israel. Um, one of the highlights of my life. I got to go there in the summer of 2000. Um, things were a little bit quieter then it, for the brief moment that it was. But I... We spent a couple days up in Galilee, and I so distinctly going to, we don't know 100% exactly where this was taught, but there's, there's a traditional site, and there's kind of a secondary traditional site. The whole northern edge of Galilee, it's just, it's just beautiful area. Um, and I remember, this is true of that whole trip, but this particular morning, just going in, and, and we read part of this, and, you know, and we got some time just to wander around, and just like being there, and thinking like, I mean, Jesus walked around here, I, it really made it come alive in a way. But it's just just imagining that, and then just was thinking about that a lot the last few weeks, reading through this and then studying for this this week. The crowds at this point that were following Jesus made up a lot of different types of people. Um, this wasn't just a group of people who agreed with him. He had religious zealots. He had political zealots. Um, I'm sure there were some soldiers probably in the crowd, there, there were your, your very low class, um, you know, the fishermen were not high class people in the society. They were, they were just trying to just scrape by. You, you had people who were, you know, waiting for the Messiah to save them from Rome. The, the zealots who were waiting for somebody to come in and just, I mean, uh, to change everything. The, just the curious people, right? The people who, oh, they heard a miracle happen. They wanted to see, they wanted to see a show. And then the people who genuinely wanted to hear what he had to say. So you, you just wasn't just a, like this, where most of the people in this room have a similar idea about the world and about their faith, and we're all kind of in agreement. We're here to to study. And get, no, this was a very diverse group of people that Jesus was talking to who would have heard this in different ways. But that doesn't change what Jesus' intent was. Um, to me, that just, it speaks to the idea that this the message of Jesus is, is not for one group. It never has been. And the world was insane and diverse and full of people with different points of views 2,000 years ago, just like it is today. Uh, we like to think that the world is kind of unique to us. Like this time in history is this. I mean, and there are unique qualities in every time in history. But the idea that people are somehow worse or that, you know, oh, my gosh, it's never been this bad before. And you read a history book. It's... It's been this bad before. Different versions, but uh, there are... And I'm not trying to dismiss that we are marching towards an ultimate. That That is true. But every generation has a tendency to kind of think of their own time as being special or unique. And 
while it may have those attributes, people have, throughout history, been a, um, a messed up group of people who needed Jesus. It was true then and it's true now. Um, there's a word that kept coming up as I was listening to a study about this. Uh, kingdom. Jesus' kingdom. He, he used this word a lot in his ministry. He was ushering in his kingdom. And that this group of attributes are tied so tightly to what that kingdom looks like and the people who are in it, the attributes they have. This is not a group of, um, this is not a bunch of different people. It's not describing the poor person, the, the mourner, the meek person. No, but this is a group of attributes that, this is one group of people. This isn't a bunch of different people who have different traits and have different rewards or kind of outcomes. It's not, well, this most merciful person will receive mercy and this meek person, they'll inherit the earth. No, no, this is a list of traits that absolutely must be present in the life of everybody who calls themselves a member of his kingdom. And the thing that, the thing that struck me over and over again listening through these was, I don't do any of these very well. Some of them I barely recognize on a regular basis. And so, honestly, I hope there was some conviction this morning. And I also want to always say that I'm the first in that line. Um, when you start digging into what some of these traits really look like, it should pierce you a little bit. It should be like, I don't see that in myself nearly as strongly as I should. Or, I see it, but it's way down this list of things that I get to when I can. And there's all these other things that, if I'm being honest, are a higher priority than it. Are some things, there are things that get my attention and my energy much quicker and more often. Another word that obviously is repeated quite a bit is blessed. Um, there's another word that's just been really hijacked and kind of neutered in today's society. Yeah. I am not a social media person, so I'm sorry if this is cringy to say, but the whole like hashtag blessed thing, I, I just, every time I see that almost, I'm just like, e- even if it's used by a Christian in a semi-correct setting, it still is just, it's one of the most deepest meaty words that God uses to talk to us. And it's just thrown around like, everything's good, you know, having a blessed life. It's just, you know, and it's just like the substitution for happy. It's not what it means. Um, and sorry if I step on my toes here, because I love America, but there is, and it's baked into our, you know, the Declaration of Independence, you know, the pursuit of happiness, that that's like a fundamental right and something that everybody should have, and I agree with that wholeheartedly. But there's this obsession with happiness, and being happy is the number one priority, that my fulfillment in whatever I define as what makes me happy is the number one goal of my life, and it should be. That's not true. It's never been true for a child of God. Now, does true happiness come and arrive through a pursuit of Jesus? Yes, it does. And is pursuing things that that fulfill you in in small ways perfectly fine? Yes, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The big thing is priorities. What's coming first? Um... Later on, I'm gonna when we get to uh, pure of heart, we're gonna dig into that a little bit more about where your priorities are, how you how you look at your life's checkboxes, so to speak. But um, let's start with start with start at the beginning, as they say in a Princess Prayer. Let's go back to the beginning. Um, oh, I did want to throw this out. the The Greek word for for blessed, it's um, I'm gonna, not gonna pronounce it right. Makrios. <laughs> um, Blessed is, it can be defined as God's approval, favor, endorsement, and congratulations. God is personally, he's approving, he has favor, he's endorsing, he's congratulating. Like That is a direct from God to us. That is not a, everything's good, because, you know, my latte was made just right this morning. It's not the same thing. And uh, I think that words are important. It's important to keep those, those words... Where they, where they should be, the meaning shouldn't be diminished because that then, it has a bad habit of trending that in society where, where we just, we, 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 we water down our, our language. We start using words that have a lot of meaning for, for less and less things. And then we wonder why 
everything seems watered down. And it's like it starts with how we communicate, and then how we communicate becomes how we really are. I mean, they follow each other around. So blessed and kingdom, those are, those are kind of two big uh, bookends for all of these that I want to... Um, even though kingdom's not used in these, but it's these are describing people in his kingdom. So that's where I want to kind of have that at the end of any of these. So, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. I find it easier to define certain things by first looking at uh, the obvious things that they aren't. Uh, it's just it's a nice contrast, an easy way to bring it up. Um, being poor in spirit... This is not material poverty that's being talked about here at all. Uh, it might be obvious to anybody who's been in the church a while, but it's it's a common thing where people are like, oh, you know, it's good to be poor. That like being poor is an inherent blessing. Now there is a lot of truth to the idea that um, wealth can get in the way of a good relationship with Jesus, and there's definitely some truth to a simpler life can lend itself to a little bit more of a focused spiritual life. But there's not some baked in, inherent, you will always be more blessed because you're poor. Uh, that's not true in general, and it's not what this is referring to. The other big thing is being poor in spirit is not self-loathing or self-degeneration. Uh, there's nothing inherently spiritual about self-flogging, about beating yourself over the head, about, you know, woe is me, and I'm just, you know, no, that's, God's not going to look at you beating yourself up and be like, ah, I'm going to bless you more. That's not what he's talking about. Um, self-loathing actually has a very prideful root. Uh, it is you are focusing on yourself almost entirely when you get into the headspace of poor me, I'm awful, things are just terrible. Whatever version of that works inside of your head, uh, it's, you know, we call our kids, you're having a pity party. That's all about you. That's all about pride. That's, that's not righteousness. That's not... Jesus working inside of you, um, and it can rear its head. And where, where you even in your humility, pride can can go. There's a a wonderful part of uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screw Tape Letters. That I, I wanted to read just a quick little piece out of. I mean, a lot of you probably heard this before, but it's just it's an amazing look at pride and humility put together. And so it's a screw tape writing to uh, Wormwood. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once a man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying, 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 wow, (laughs) reflection. By Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. I, I, I remember. I distinctly remember the first time I read this book. I was in um, early high school, and that section was just like, "Wow!" Because the most successful attacks are the sneaky, kind of underhanded ones. Satan rarely comes at a Christian head-on in a. I'm going to just throw this massive temptation that you know right off the bat what it is, and, and you're going to deflect. No, it's not effective. He, he's not stupid. He's going to come in through the little angles that he can find. And twist our our good qualities into things. Pride is always there, right? Pride doesn't magically go away. Now, if we are pursuing God with our whole hearts, hopefully, pride is is lessening. It's becoming less intense. It is getting less and less of a grip on everything in our heart. But it never vanishes. It, it is there as the root, and it's just waiting to uh, to nip at our heels. But poor in spirit is one of those things. That it's so important to have, and at the same time. You have to guard your heart so well because truly being poor in spirit is that beginning part. At the beginning, I was talking about the first step in the A program. You you have to admit that you're completely powerless. Poor in spirit is tied to that. The actual, um, the the Greek word being used, a lot of people would immediately go to the, there's one Greek word for poor that means, it's it's used in Matthew when they talk about the, uh, the woman who gave her last two copper pennies. It was like, she's incredibly poor. She gave the last she had. That's not the word used here. Um, That woman was at the end, and she was used as an amazing example of trusting in God. And I'm not putting anything against that, but that's not the word that's used here. The Greek word uh, here is uh, petosh. 
I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. I apologize. But it's actually comes from a verb that means to shrink, to cower, or to cringe, as beggars often did. They wouldn't even want to show their face. There, there's a picture that I saw where somebody had like their face covered and their hand out. Just complete destitution. You are so utterly broken, you can't even look the person in the eye that you desperately need something from. That's how at the bottom you are. That's where we're supposed to start. That's the realization that has to be at the origin of our faith. Because if we don't ever hit the point where we realize how desperately in need of Jesus we were and still are, then how could we ever have a correct and full relationship with him? Because if you never get there, then you're going to be somewhere in the in the realm of, I get a little credit for this. It's just a little bit me. You know, I'm, you know, Jesus, you know, praise Jesus and look at all the work he's done. And at the same time, I, you know, I get a little bit in there. Whether we're conscious of that or not, it, it's there. And that's, again, that's pride. Now you go all the way back to Adam and Eve. That, that was That's the beginning of everything. That's, I have a little bit of my own credit. I, I get a little bit of my own decision-making. I, I somehow only need Jesus somewhat, not 100%. And so that, that's what's where it starts. That's where, that's the first thing that must grab hold of our hearts as we are entering into the kingdom of, of heaven, both down here and, and ultimately in heaven itself. But, I mean, that starts down here. That's the process of sanctification. It must include all these. These, these need to be present. Humility is something that we have to choose, something that we have to be conscious of, be aware of, guard against pride. Because if we just get on, you know, hit the cruise control button on that part of our hearts, it's going to, pride is going to come roaring back in. And you're going to be like, where did that come from? And it's like, because it's all, it would never left. It's not something that you can just, just ignore and hope doesn't come back. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, this is an interesting one, too, because you think, hey, mourning. Now, you know, a lot of people, I, I, I have to imagine a lot of people read this, and like, okay, so mourners, and they're comforted, like, you know, it's kind of this nice picture of people who are sad and, and, and grieving something, and, well, you know, God's going to take care of them. And feel, No, it's, it's not what this is talking about. This is us. This is our reaction to the first one. As we become aware of our desperate need, our complete and utter destitution, and our need for Jesus... We do mourn over ourselves. This, this isn't mourning for other. I mean, there is an aspect of mourning for the world in general. But the first thing you have to become aware of is, is your own heart, your own broken, sinful, fallen nature. The, the William Barclay had this amazing, uh, he summed up the Greek word for mourn. He said, what that's used here is the strongest word for mourning in the Greek language. It is the word which is used for mourning for the dead, for the passionate lament for the one who was loved. Because most people, I don't want to say all people, really loved themselves before they were Christians. You thought, you thought pretty highly of yourself. And that's a normal, everybody does. Like that's not, that's not controversial, it shouldn't be. And if you feel like it is, then I, I would challenge some really basic worldview tenets. Uh, people are in love with themselves. People love their own opinions. They love their own thoughts and relationships, their own decisions and and lives. They, they defend them. I mean, look around, and one of the biggest things happening right now in our culture is this intense defense from this from the sinful side of the world, right? You, you poke them even a tiny bit. Like, what you're doing is not, no, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to defend it. I'm gonna, and, and not even that. Like, we're at a point now where it's like, I'm going to be proud of it, and you should be proud of it for me. Like, oh, my gosh. It's just pride, just reeking all the time, in contrast to what we're supposed to be doing, where God reveals to us the extent of our brokenness, and in and our response is just a complete and utter internal mourning of our own souls. And that can only lead us to one place. That's the beautiful thing. This is a, a beautiful thing because the end result of mourning, when it's in response to a true understanding of our place is to God. So it, it, again, it's, this isn't like the, the comforting is our relationship with God is the comfort here. Now there definitely is a place to to look at the world and 
and more in just the, the depravity around us. Jesus did this. I mean, you know, he looked over you know, Jerusalem and he wept. He, he looked at the world and it, it grieves his heart. It grieves the heart of God that the world is, for the most part, an evil place that is not going to come to him. That's just a reality. And that should grieve us also. But ultimately, this still has to be true in us first. This is uh, something that the teacher I've been listening to said that I just, I don't even want to try to summarize this because I just love the way he said it. He said, when I have come to the end of myself and I am finally facing the facts that I have no strength, no ability, no power, no way of being right with God, then I begin to cry out to God. Which leads us into the next one. And again, you'll see this pattern. These all lead to the next one. There's, there's a, there's a causality nature to these. And there's a reason why they're the beginning. They're the, these are the first, this is the, the first recorded public speaking of Jesus to, to the, the crowds in general. I mean, it, where it was a sermon form. Because the beginning here where it talks about he came and he sat. It's when he, Jen, earlier today, is that traditionally, you guys would be standing up and I'd be sitting in a chair or on the ground, depending on how it is in Jewish tradition, that that was, you know, so when Jesus came and he sat down, like this was a very formal, like he was teaching. This wasn't just a kind of off the cuff, you know, this was, he, he assumed the role of a teacher in a formal Jewish way. And this is where he started. So again, I just, these are basics, but I think we can get past these and stop thinking about them as often as we shouldn't stop really looking at ourselves and going, do I see these qualities? Do I still truly understand and have the broken, you know, the, the poor in spirit? Do, did I, you know, do I have that, that morning? And, and am I, and am I meek? Um, it, the reason why I'm feeling so just like passionate about this, and I, again, I, in myself, I miss these, but I just, I look around at our world today, and I look at the Western church also, like I, I do not want to, go off on a tangent about this, but I'll just say it makes me incredibly sad to look at the church today. Um, especially in, in the last year and a half. Just the all of the, the nastiness going on, the response from so many Christians is not in a way that I think reflects a lot of these principles. And I'm not saying that I don't agree with probably most people here about my, my personal thoughts and feelings about um, all the divisive issues hitting today, but our response to them tends to be a little bit more combative and uh, angry than I think you will ever find supported in Scripture. Um, and I think that's something worth looking at because you don't need to adopt those traits to be very effective. In fact, you'll end up being um, very misrepresenting of the church. And I see that on social media, and I see that um, played out on the news and uh, again, not to take away from the utter depravity of the other side, but the church needs to keep better at this meekness. That, that this very directly talks about that meekness. It's one of those words that we don't use a whole lot, right? It's it's been replaced by other words in our modern vernacular. Uh, meekness is not passive temperaments or indecision. Laziness, fragility, meekness isn't any of those things. Um, the the most traditional definition of meekness that I've always heard in my life in Calvary Chapel has been meekness is strength under control, uh, which is a really good definition. It's not a bad one at all. But even more there, meekness is you are so sure and so just at peace with who God is and that he's got this that you don't feel the need to assert yourself over him and his will, that you are very okay with letting God be the one who's out in front. You don't need to put yourself there. You, that, that need has gone away because when you look at God and you honestly understand who he is and his role in all of history, not that you don't actively participate, not that you don't stay engaged, but at the end of the day, you're not going to assert yourself over what God is going to do. Again, getting back to weakness, is not, it's not a weakness. I, um, I skipped over this, but I just wanted to say, because it's awesome. Probably somebody knows here knows here. In the Bible, uh, who is considered like the most meek man in the entire Bible? Harvey probably knows this immediately. There's Moses in Numbers 12.3. Now the man Moses, who was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth, 
I don't think Moses has ever been looked at as a wuss in the Old Testament. Uh, he was, now he, he had his, uh, you know, his scared moments, which God quickly uh, took care of and dealt with. But Moses was a very strong, assertive man. But at the same time, when did Moses get himself in trouble? Every time. When he got out in front of God, when he tried to assert his own will, over, and he's like, God said to do this? No, I'm going to do this. And he got, I mean, metaphorically, he got spanked. <laughs> Every time. And when he did just know his place and be a strong leader, be a, a, a strong man of God, but still always make sure that God was out in front, that's when they prospered. I mean, it's such a, it's one of those things where there's not even, like, room to disagree on this one because every example in the entire Bible, David was another great example of just an amazing man who, when he asserted his own will, I, he got into some real trouble. I mean, Bathsheba's the big obvious one, but there's other smaller examples also. When we put ourselves ahead of God, even in small moments, the consequences are always, always going to be there. And in hindsight, how often is that, it's never happened and then been like, no, that worked out really well. No. Meekness is not about just rolling over and taking, taking your, your beating or, or just the, uh, rolling with, uh, with the punches. But it is about understanding that you don't need to fight for God. Sorry, you don't need to fight God's fights. I want to make that, clear that up. We do fight for God, but we're not fighting in front of Him. He's, you know, we're, we're not doing his work, his work in a way that supersedes his plan. Again, I could spend an entire morning go through example after example of great men of God who followed God and then started to get a little cocky and got out ahead of him. And it's like, I'm feeling good. I, I, I've got this. And I don't need to go to God every time. I don't need to go back to him and make sure that I'm in his will. And time after time, it just, they get bit and they get, they get put back in their place because that's not how it works. We will never, ever be able to do a better job than God does. And we have to keep that in mind. Um, meekness also implies a very teachable spirit. This is another, just, a, just kind of a side note to this quality. You're, you're strong, but you know your place. You also are a very open, open heart to God. You, you, have, you have a spirit that is, is always looking to God being like, teach me, tell me. Show me, instruct me, because there is never a point where we go, I've learned what I need to learn. I'm good to go. Why do we study the Bible our entire Christian lives? This is not a huge book. I've read many books that are longer than the Bible, and they're great, but I don't go back to them and study them over and over and over again, because most of them you get to a point where you're like, all right, that's the story, or or, or that's the, um, the lesson. I'm good. It's finished. The Bible is not that way, because it is... God's gateway into our heart that I mean he he speaks to us directly through our hearts and through prayer through other people but first and foremost through his word and it is something that is alive and that is you can read the same verse years later and get God will reveal something completely new to you there's not a point where we ever are finished we are continually in that loop of going back to God and studying and listening and learning and messing up I, I we're all going to. That's the thing is, this isn't a conviction of if you mess up, well, you're, you're done. But it is that when you mess up, do you keep that meek spirit where you go, oh, I'm sorry, God. Let me back up, get back to where I need to be, look back to you first, and get my house back in order, my, my, my internal, my internal house. So again, this is not something that's optional or something that if you just do it a little bit, you'll be fine. No, this is such an essential core tenant of living in Jesus' kingdom. And then that, that teachable spirit, that that right place with God, leads right into the next one. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. It is hard to imagine hunger and thirst in the sense that this passage is talking about in the Western world today. Uh, because when I'm hungry... It typically means I haven't eaten in a few hours and I'm looking for a snack. When I'm thirsty, it's not only am I, you know, I'm just looking for something, but it's like, what are the five or six options I've got sitting in my house at any given time? And worst case scenario, I can go turn on the faucet and I get clean running water. The closest I can imagine is, I mean, I, I worked 
installing uh, stoves in the uh, Sacramento Valley in California where it gets a little warm and working on a roof in the early afternoon, you get pretty thirsty. That's the closest I can, like, on a personal level, that's the closest I can even imagine. But that is still not like you are starving. You are dehydrated to the point where you could die. That is the implication of when it's talking about hunger and thirsting here, that you are, you are at the point where if you don't get something, it's death. A starving person has a single, all-consuming passion, right? A, a, a person who's dehydrated, they have one thing on their mind. There's not, like, there's not a, oh, I'm thirsty, and I'm also still thinking about, you know, this thing that I saw on the internet or, oh, this news story. It's like, and it's just, it's on that list. Like, no. When you get to the point where it is the only thing you care about, everything else goes away. It becomes, you know, it's like the, the focus shrinks down. It's like, that's it. There's nothing else. That's what this is talking about. You are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And this is one of the ones that just hit me like, and I want to be careful here because this isn't about legalism. Um, because there are three three types of righteousness that are all exemplified. Well, they are all shown in the Bible multiple times. Legal righteousness, which is our um, relationship with Jesus Christ, that He satisfied by dying on the cross. That is how salvation works. That is the legal righteousness through God. I mean, Paul. We're in Romans right now. That's half that book is describing that this is how it works. This is what Jesus did. The law is not going to get you there. It never could. Its only purpose was ever to show you how much you needed Jesus. Legal righteousness is where a lot of Christians stop. Because there's two more types. There's moral and there's social. And as much as you do want to be careful to not dip into legalism where you think, okay, so, you know, moral righteousness, the righteousness of character, express the righteous living. Um, you're, you're pursuing conformity to the example shown in the Bible. That is not what saves you. But if that's not something that matters, or matters very little, look out. You know, James talks about this multiple times. It isn't about worry because you're not saved if you don't do this checklist. But do worry that if none of this stuff shows up in your life, why? Or if it does show up, if it shows up in a very minor, kind of back burner way, Why? That should be a good indicator of our own heart's condition to ourselves. It's not about showing other people their righteousness. It's not about putting on a good show. It's not, you know, moralism, which is just all about the outwardness. And that's, that's your, I am very concerned about the way that I present. That, you know, you all see me and I look a certain way and I talk a certain way and I, I make sure that the things that are on social media only, only fall into this category and my kids behave a certain way. And, you know, I look very buttoned up got it together. One, that's easy to do. And two, it means nothing. To God, anyways. It might mean something to another person, but who cares about that? Unfortunately, we all do too much. That's the problem. We all care very much about what other people think, and are you more worried about what Jesus thinks of your heart than what somebody else at church thinks of how you look or how you talk? Now, again, our moral righteousness, and I'll get to social righteousness here briefly, but those things do matter in a, if they don't show up, that should be an internal kind of level of fruit indicator, if you want to use Christianese, you know, it's, it's, it's your, uh, your, your health barometer. But that should be much more of an internal process between you and God. But, first and foremost, we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness with Jesus on a personal, internal level. And then at the same time, do we care about the rest of righteousness, you know, moral and social righteousness? Do we care about seeing right living in our, in our culture? Do we see, you know, we worry about right living in our homes with our kids? Those things should matter. They shouldn't matter in a, you've taken the, uh, the leap over to, to legalism, but again, you want to make sure those things matter. And, and all of those are included in this, that Jesus repeatedly demonstrates, and this means you can take these principles and then look through the rest of the Gospels, and Jesus repeatedly demonstrates how much he cares about all this stuff. This isn't just he said it and then it never comes up again. It's showcased time and time again in the way that he interacts with his disciples, with the crowds, with the religious, you know, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of Israel, the way he interacts with Rome. It's all illustrated. So if you want to say all that matters is your, you know, grace-driven, legal righteousness between you and God, and you're done. Okay, but you are missing. And again, I, I, there's, this is one of the problems, and I, 
I'm a, a devout believer in what happened in the Protestant Reformation. But one of the things that came out of that was this kind of reflex of, I don't want to get into legalism. I don't want to get obsessed with, you know, because that's dangerous. And it can be. But you don't want to take that so far where, you know, the the old saying, throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to get so obsessed with making sure you don't get into legalism that you stop caring about righteousness around you, in the world, in your own life, on a a practical sense, that those things should follow. So all of that, that all-encompassing look at righteousness is important and is something that should be very high on the list of priorities. That's something that, if it doesn't matter to us, if we look back and honestly go, I didn't even think about it for like a long time, that that's that should concern us. So, a little bit of a transition as he's going through, you know, because the, the first couple of Beatitudes are talking about an emptying, a like, let's set up your heart. And then we get to this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is one of the... Um, one of the great characteristics of God that we want to see and then emulate. It's interesting, interesting also because this is the one that it's just mirrored in the Beatitude. Are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. That you're, you're giving what you get. And mercy is something that is tied very much to grace. They're almost always put together. Um, they're, they're, they're tied together a lot in scripture, but they're not exactly the same thing. The Martin Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones, wrote an amazing book, by the way. I don't know if anybody here has read it. It's just called Studies in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a big, thick book. He spent an entire year going through the Sermon on the Mount, and somebody put it in the book, which is amazing. But he had this uh, definition that I really liked. Uh, the best definition of the two, and he's referring to grace and mercy, that I have ever encountered is this: grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, while grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon their miserable consequences of sin. So that mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. Grace is what saves us. But mercy is something that is shown to us constantly. And it is an expression of love and compassion. It is something that we are shown just in droves. And again, this gets back to if you have a true and accurate understanding of your state, of your status, of who you are next to God, you have the almighty creator of the universe on one side, and then there's you. If you understand the nature of that relationship, and you understand that God showed you mercy, and the just the breadth of that, you absolutely must and should be responding with the same this, the same back, not just to, I mean, we, we can't be merciful to God. He, that doesn't make any sense because God doesn't need any. But we can be to each other. And we can desire to showcase that and give that as much as possible. Again, it comes to, do we, does our life, does our, do our actions reflect accurately how much we have let God just invade our hearts and then pour out? Um, Mercy does not mean tolerance. It doesn't mean just we're going to kind of get along to get along. Mercy is not about just accepting and kind of coexisting. Um, I know those are all hot words today. Because here's the thing. Mercy is a characteristic of God. So whenever you define it, whenever you want to look at what mercy is, that definition, that definition has to fall entirely into something that God could, could have. And so truth and justice kind of have to be tied to mercy in a way that it's not a a just generic, I just love everybody and I'll just take anything and, and everybody and just, you know, just kind of an unconditional. No, that's not what mercy is. Mercy actually is looking at the consequences of sin and it is responding with a compassionate, loving heart. Because here's the thing. We are not on a higher moral, like, Plain than, than the sinners running around the world. This is, um, I remember seeing this in a bumper sticker, I think, a long time ago. It was the whole, like, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm just forgiven. I'm gonna totally mess this up. But the idea that I'm not somehow a better human being than the person that we see running around on social media that we just think, oh my gosh, that person is, 
you know, not got a chance. You know, they, they are going, uh, they're going straight to the, straight to the bad place. We don't have any inherent advantage over them. We're, we're, we're not sitting here going like, I'm just a better human being. No, you're not. You've been saved. Grace, the grace of God has been poured out upon you. Now, you might have a slightly better checklist of like how you're doing on a day-to-day basis, but morally, as a human heart, you're not superior and don't act like you are. Don't have a, a prideful, arrogant attitude towards other people because you are saved. Because you don't get any credit for it. Have a merciful, loving, compassionate heart towards the world. Jesus did not, I mean, he, yes, blatant disrespect. You know, the, the, the infamous uh, temple uh, story where Jesus came in and he sees money changers in the temple and he's just like, get out of my father's house, this is no Yes, that does exist. And there is a place for righteous anger against just blatant ungodliness. But at the same time, Jesus has story after story of people who we would probably not want to spend any time with where he just loved on them and had compassion for them and he ministered to them. I know, again, I, working with uh, the kids that I did when I was working in the group home, these are not people I would have, as a, a younger, less mature person, would have ever wanted to spend time with. These were kind of, you know, dirty people. They were uh, morally bankrupt people who were, you know, messing up and, and just had, you know, a life full of just mistake after mistake after mistake. And... What that time in my life taught me in a very harsh way, and I got spiritually kicked hard many times in that job, because I had I had a nasty, prideful attitude when I started that. I felt genuinely as though I was superior. Like I somehow had the right to look down on them a little bit because I had it together and they didn't. I, I, I had it figured out. You know, I, I could explain the uh, the worldview of salvation and God and, and my place in it and how... They were going straight to hell, and I wasn't. So good for me somehow? That's not how it works. Those people needed love. They needed to be shown God's mercy. They needed to be it to be showcased by me. And if, if it wasn't going to go through me, it would go through somebody else. God doesn't need you know us. He's gonna he's gonna find a way to do it no matter what. But again, that's it's easy to again looking around the world today and just the just I mean. Because the amount of in-your-face uh, just immorality is just growing right now. I mean, and I know we all see it, we, and we just all like just it's 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 suffocating sometimes. Just the hostility towards the church. The again, we're not even asking anymore for you just to simply tolerate our immorality. We want you to be happy for us and our fill in the blank. Uh, yeah, I don't want to go down the list. That doesn't change this. That our heart is supposed to be, ultimately, that person needs Jesus. Not that that person needs my anger and my vitriol because they're threatening me. Now, we do need to guard ourselves. We need, we need to protect the, the church and our children and I mean all those things. But at the same time, that person needs Jesus. We are not called to attack them. We are called to love them. And that is hard to do. I'm not trying to waltz past the, the difficulty there. But that... There's not another option that's given to us by Jesus. I got to speed up. <laughs> Blessed are the pure in heart. And again, these just these all just tie together so well. I mean, purity in heart. You know, being being meek and merciful, pure in heart. I mean, they all they all go together. These are traits that interlock together so well. Being pure in heart. And this is one of those that like you can kind of use it like on a um, cross stitch or you know a poster. You know, it's like ah, oh, pure in heart. You know, and it's just been, it can kind of lose its its. Uh, it's weight when it's used as a cliche or as just kind of a, a nice saying for a, a Christian life. But it's a lot more than that. Again, I'm just going to read this. To be pure in heart is to will one thing. Return love to the God who first loved you. To be pure in heart is to choose Jesus over everything and everyone because he alone is worthy of such love. You know, Paul said it great in Philippians, where he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He is the center. The, an easy way to look at this is, is Jesus simply the first checkbox in your life? If, if you look at your life and you think, here's all my stuff. Here's, uh, 
Here's all the aspects of my life. Well, Jesus is first. He's, he's the first one. Okay, you're, you're getting there. But that's not good enough. Uh, what if Jesus, instead of being at the top of a list of desires, was actually moved to the center of every desire? The idea that he's not just one of a list of things, that he's in everything. That at the core of our decision-making, at the core of our living, at the core of how we treat other people, how we approach every decision in our life. There's, I can't think of a single, even, you can get into some, if you really want to get combative, you can just, but any significant decision in your life about the people you have in your life, your ministry, where you live, where you work, it's big things. There's none of those that somehow get an exemption that, well, my relationship with Jesus doesn't impact this at all. So I really don't have any correlation. That doesn't, that shouldn't be a thing. Jesus should be at the center. There should be a consideration always of how does this impact my relationship with Jesus, with Jesus and how does this further and help me? I, even it's as simple as how, how am I going to be able to, to show Jesus to these people that I'm going to be around now because of this new job or this new place to live or this new church even? Because we're all collectively part of a church if we go to a new church. It's not like I'm just going to attend. No, we're, we are part of that, and how are we going to be feeding into that and not just be a consumer? That's a whole other sermon there of a consumer churchism. Um, but purity of heart is is that, 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 that core. Jesus is at the center. He's And that's something that, again, you have to work at. You have to pursue God. You have to run from sin. That great, you know, in, in Timothy, or Jesus, you know, Paul is instructing, like, don't just, like, chill in the vicinity and think, like, I'm good. No, no. Being pure heart means that you are always trying to keep that gulf as big as possible. You are not living your life going, how much of the world can I get in and still feel that somehow I have justified that I'm, I'm on this side of the fence. I'm still a Christian. I'm still mostly on God's side. But I'm going to get as much of this in as I can because I like it. It's good. Because sin, sin is alluring. It is fun. Uh, I've heard John say this a few times, and I, I working in drug rehab. You know the thing about addictive stuff, drugs, sex, alcohol. Um, there's a lot of other things you can get addicted to. Sugar in today's society. They're all great in the moment. They feel good. They're fun. It isn't some like horrific thing that people are doing anyways. Now they can get there when you know when addiction takes its toll, and you're at the end of your rope, and they've. Taking the tool, but no, we're not at the beginning. And that's true of all the little things too. Sin is not, generally speaking, something that is horrifically, obviously wrong and bad. A lot of it is something that, when we, uh, just dabble, <laughs> that's not that word, dabble in it, we like it. And it is so, I've caught myself doing this many times in my life. And when I do, I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally, I like that enough to see, like, I, I know in extremes it, it's horrible, but, like, I'm going to give it as much as I can while still feeling that somehow I'm, like, staying on this side. That's not pursuing Jesus with your whole heart. And, again, legalism and the extreme, like, I, there's a lot of areas where we do have freedom in Christ, and I, I don't want to, I don't want time to get into that, but there is freedom in Christ, and I don't want to try to blend blend those two things, but... Are you honestly able to say, this is, I guess is the best way to the, 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 um, the test you could put on anything in your life. Can you honestly say that this would be exactly the same if Jesus was right here? That this wouldn't change? And, and it's, it's a way that we like teach our kids how to do it, but it works perfectly well as adults too. If Jesus was physically standing here hanging out with you, would you be doing this the exact same way? How often is the answer yes to that? So, that is something again that is, is is core to living in Jesus with His kingdom. The the peacemakers. This I'm going to go kind of breeze through this one, not because it's not important, but because again we are a little short on time. But I do want to at least mention two things about blessed are the peacemakers. One is, and I so everybody here is I'm sure aware of yeah cancel culture and the whole. You know, let's just get rid of anybody we disagree with in society. And I heard this, and I'm like, that's amazing. Uh, so one of the popular definitions of peace is it's the absence of conflict. Um, it's not God's definition of peace. When peace is the absence of conflict, any hint of perceived conflict has to be gotten rid of. I was just like, wow, okay. 
So if you as the you know as the world you buy into because we hear this all the time, right? That you you know I was offended, I was made uncomfortable, I was you know there was a micro you know just any level of like wrong perceived or real must be instantly gotten rid of. That's a natural uh, conclusion you can get to if you think truly that peace is just simply the absence of any kind of conflict. That you get selfish about it. That you get, I'm going to define what conflict is, and it all has to go. And so everybody who creates conflict to me, whether it's real or not, has, and that, it, it's one of the core things that can really create one of the problems happening today. And I just heard that, and I'm like, that's, that's very poignant. And I, I hadn't heard that exact phrasing before, and I just wanted to share that. But the Hebrew word for peace, we're all, I'm sure everybody here knows it, shalom. I mean, it, it's a greeting, but it has a lot of deep meaning. And I just want to read this definition before we go on to persecution, which is the wrap-up. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal, flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. That's all, all that to say is shalom is the way things ought to be. And the way things ought to be in the context of God's kingdom. That is what peace means to God. And pursuing that type of peace is what this is referring to. Um, It is not about being easygoing and just being an appeaser. And at the same time, it is not just about the absence of of conflict. And I just wanted to, uh, to touch on that. So, Wrap up with, I'm actually going to do the last two kind of together because they definitely tie together. Um, there is a few uh, things to definitely point out about each one, but I'm going to read them both here. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Uh, one thing I want to say right away, and this is true of any version that I could find, because the, um, the original uh, translation makes this distinction. Blessed are those, which is all of these have been a kind of broad sense of blessed are people in the kingdom. It, it's a broad term. And the last time, blessed are you, he gets individual, he gets singular. So in the, at the end, he kind of, there's like this focus in where Jesus is like, at the very last one, individually looking at you, blessed are you when you are reviled and persecuted. Now, I think everybody here knows this is growing in the Western Church, uh, there are plenty of parts of the world, and it's easy to forget this. There are plenty of parts in the world where this is going full bore now. You know, we live in a very insulated area where even the greater amount of persecution we're starting to get to experience now in America is very little compared to um, Christians who are living in parts of Asia and Southeast Asia, Christians who are living in the, um, the Middle East, even Europe has gotten just, I mean, dark. Uh, it's still technically free where you can assemble, and but, I mean, it's it's so much more. The open hatred towards the church has been around there longer than it has here, and we're on our way, for sure. And we can look at the first century and Rome and see, I mean, those are like the textbook examples of, you know, persecution. I mean, you look at Nero and, and the, the horror stories of the way Christians were treated there. Persecution is coming, but that's not... The point of this. Persecution is going to be a natural reaction to living this way, to having these beatitudes be intrinsic in how we live. He's saying, one, blessed are people who go through this, and you should rejoice. He gets down, you know, at the end here, rejoice in these. It's, it's not a, you almost, it's almost like a, uh, a badge of honor of like, I'm actually doing it right. Because if you're not being persecuted, if you're not having running into any kind of conflict with the world, again, you can use that as an as an indicator, kind of like um, like righteousness earlier. If you don't see this, wonder what's going on. Because if nobody is reacting to you living for Jesus wholeheartedly, then how are you? And this isn't in a go out and cause trouble, but a just inherently following Jesus with your whole heart will create persecution, will create pushback. And if it's not, there's only two things I can say. Either you have isolated yourself so completely from the world that you don't have contact with anybody outside of other believers, which is not what we're called to do, 
We are called to be out in the world. We are called to be evangelistic. We are called to be lights and salt, which is literally the next thing he goes into here in Matthew. So you're, you're either not fulfilling that part of your walk where you are hiding from the world and keeping in a tight little group where nobody will challenge you and nobody will, will push you and everybody gets along, which is which can be very comforting and has its times for recharge and for teaching and, and refresh. Or you are out in the world, but this stuff is so lightweight and so down the list of things in your life that it doesn't show up. And people don't even know. And there have been times in my life where I've seen this in me. I, I hate that that's true, but it, it has been. And I realize, I don't think, I don't know, people even would know that I'm a Christian. Now, they might guess that I'm a decent person because I don't swear and because I'm nice to my kids and because I, you know, I punch in and out on time. I have this like moral checklist of, I'm a good person, whatever that means. But I'm not, I don't show Jesus because there's a difference. So again, just keep that in mind. And he gives the, the reward essentially, the, uh, the, here is the end of the story. Your reward is great in heaven. He literally lays it out at the end. Like, rejoice and don't worry because at the end of it, I mean, your motivation is the end of the story. You're going to be with me in heaven and everything is going to be good. Now we have to get there. But, I mean, it's, he's, there's not even a, um, he's not trying to like work around something here. It's just, just, it's a straight up, there is a reward. The reward is me. The reward is me forever. And gosh, if you, if you understand what that is and that's not enough, then again, I would challenge you to look in your own heart. I'm going to close with two, with two passages and then we'll be done. First, Matthew 6, 19 through 21. And then verse 33, this is later on in the same sermon. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's what we've been talking about, guys. It's about... Not it's about heavenly things. It's not about this world. It's about our our heart's relationship with Jesus. That's what matters. And if that isn't a priority, then I I I, I genuinely challenge everybody here and everybody who might be watching. Look at yourself. Be honest with yourself and think, how am I doing in these? Maybe there are areas where I can be doing better. There are areas where I am putting too much effort into treasures here on earth. And lastly, Second Corinthians four seventeen and eighteen. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I just have a big bold bottom of my notes here. Jesus is worth it. I cannot emphasize this enough. I can't say this hard enough. These basic tenets... They're so easy to just get into the rhythm of, yeah, it's, it's Christianity. I'm doing it. I'm, I've been a Christian my whole life. I was raised as a Christian. This is just me personally. I had amazing parents. They, they, they weren't raised as Christians. They both were saved in their 20s. And I had the benefit of their, their life experience and that radical transformation where they raised me incredibly well. And I've, you know, the worst things that I can say about my excursions into the world on a, on a, on a mental uh, type, are are not. I don't have an amazing testimony of like, oh, I you know went off the deep end, did this crazy thing, and God pulled me back or anything. No, I I, I had that, I've had that benefit of my entire life, knowing the truth, and I fall short all the time. And looking at these, I find this incredibly challenging. And I know that everybody has a different story, and everybody has their own unique set of life experiences where they have had their struggles and they've had their their triumphs. But ultimately, coming back to these basics over and over again, not letting them get far. I mean, yes, getting into meat, getting into heavy theology, getting into um, the the in-depth tenets of of uh, apologetics and, and prophecy. Those are all amazing, and, and I love going into those. But you can never get so into those that you just stop even thinking about these basics. And that's, that's my encouragement and my exhortation for this morning. So let's go ahead and pray. Dear Jesus, we, we thank you for your words. We thank you that not only did you save us, but you came down and you spoke to us. 
that you shared your heart for your kingdom with us. You, you laid it out, and then not only did you tell us, you showed us so completely your heart through your actions, through your ultimate sacrifice, that the ultimate levels of, of love and compassion and mercy and grace. We thank you so much for that. And we just pray that you would help us to never lose track of and never forget the incredible example that you showed. And then our response to that would always be that we would just strive after you, that we would hunger and thirst for you, for your righteousness, for the purity of heart that you show. Pray that you would show that through us to each other. You would bring that into our own internal hearts and minds in our relationships with you and in the quiet, dark places of ourselves that it would just never be far away. We love you so much, Jesus. In your name, amen.